Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Dear Diary, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2015. In the first story, Susan Odgers reads a journal entry she wrote during a trip to the Cannes Film Festival, where she yearns for something similar in Traverse City. The diary entry I'm going to share took place about 10 years ago at the 57th Cannes Film Festival. Cannes and Nice are part of the French Riviera, the Côte d'Azur, about an hour from Italy. Several James Bond films have been made there with the sultry climate, curving mountain coastal roads, and the perfect combination of French and Italian Mediterranean life. It can be a glamorous, intensely sexy place. So here begins. Dear Diary, it's 3.30 in the morning, Tuesday, May 18th, 2004. Edward has just left me at my apartment in Nice. He threatened to lock me in so I couldn't leave France. More about Edward in a minute. I have to pack up my entire studio apartment where I've been living alone for the past several months and get back on a plane to the U.S. in three hours. I've got everything but the girl blasting on my CD player to keep me moving. I think I'll make a huge pile in the bathroom of everything I can't take with me for the housekeeping girls. They've become my friends. Most of it is duplication of items I've got at home anyway. Why did I collect all this stuff? I'm probably looking at paying for extra bags as it is. I shouldn't be taking the time to write this, but I never want to forget today. When I'm an old lady, I'll be glad I did. This semester, I've been teaching psychology and English in several departments at the University of Nice. Surprisingly, the dental school has been my favorite. My students come from all over the world. Most learn English from the Brits, yet they want to speak the way Americans speak English. They rarely have a teacher from the US. I've been asked to record my voice by reading news pieces in the university lab, lead conversations in bars and cafes, and tutor individual students. Most of the students are upset with President Bush for the invasion into Iraq last year and hope that he isn't reelected. Everywhere I go on campus, students want to discuss politics, American pop culture, and why Americans are so obese. One girl asked me yesterday where the original pilgrims in America got their costumes. (laughs) Others asked me if any of the musicians who come from Michigan, Madonna, Eminem, ICP, Jack White, and so on, if I know any of them. Another student told me the ultimate French male fantasy was to have a large, typical American breakfast, eggs, steak, potatoes, grits, etc., served by a blonde, busty American girl on roller skates. (laughs) I didn't have the heart to tell him that rarely happens in the U.S. When I told him that in the U.S. people buy French-made costumes as fantasy wear, he cracked up and couldn't believe it. He said that never happens in France. I've also been writing articles and serving as a psychological consultant to English speakers living here, and I've been faxing weekly my own clients back in the U.S. Nice is like my second home. Tom and I have been coming here for business, his business, Meetum, the music equivalent of the Cannes Film Festival, every year in January and February. This year, I wanted an adventure for myself, by myself. 
an opportunity out of the northern Michigan winter, a chance to sort of live like a single gal, married and solo. Tom and I talk for an hour at the same time every day. It's been hard. His dad died while I've been here. We agreed ahead of time that I wouldn't come home for the funeral. Back home, they're grieving together. I'm going it alone. Living apart is challenging. We miss each other, and we're doing okay. Many nights, I sleep in one of his shirts. It has his scent on it, and I can pretend he's holding me. I even roll up the sleeves and visualize his wrists and forearms, which I think are some of the sexiest parts of a man's body. I've been working really hard here while I've been in Nice, and because of what's referred to as my strong American work ethic, I've carved out plenty of time to do side traveling and delve into the life, as they say. Yesterday was one of those days. First, more about Edward. Edward is the 20-something son of a friend I teach with at the university. She's a Brit and her hubby is French. They've become my close friends. Edward is fully bilingual. He's between jobs right now and is working as my assistant. He's tall, thin, dark eyes and hair, intense, and still every bit a playful boy. He's smart, has a passion for DJ mixing electronic music, loves psychology, and we get along amazingly well. He has that rare ability to anticipate what I'm going to need and is fearless in his maneuvering of my wheelchair. I listen to anything he wants to talk about, guide him when I can, and support him in his goals. We're a good team. About a week ago, I received an email from a close friend in Traverse City saying that some people we know are coming to Cannes for the film festival and that maybe I could see them. Long story short, the friends and I arranged to meet when they get to Cannes. For the past week or so, Edward, Pat, and I have been going to the film festival. I also teach with Pat, a Brit married to a Greek, and she's a huge film buff. Every morning, we get up early and take the short ride into Cannes from Nice. We pack our lunches and see as many films as we can get tickets for. Most of the international films we've seen play in big hotel banquet rooms. Cannes is filled with hotels. I've tried to see films I wouldn't be able to see easily in Traverse City. A film festival is the furthest thing from life in Traverse City. (laughs) The Cannes Film Festival is everything I thought it would be. For years, I've watched the news footage showing the palm trees, red carpets, celebrities, shimmering seaside yachts, throngs of paparazzi, and the top prize, the Palme d'Or. There's also a carnival, Cirque du Soleil atmosphere. Billboard-sized ads promoting various films are pulled by trucks all day long along the promenade, the multi-mile main street. Hawkers, fully covered in silver body paint, perform along the walkways, handing out promo material for films, parties, and bars. Working residents are also out and about trying to complete the mundane routines of their daily lives amidst all of the commotion. Yesterday, Edward and I went to Cannes without pad. We arrived mid-morning. It was a hot day, and sweat lightly covered our bare skin. We were very dressed up. Edward in a narrow-cut dark suit, white shirt, and dark tie. Me in a knee-length red cocktail dress. I even taped up my cleavage like the stars do. Architects and engineers would have been impressed. (laughs) We looked like celebrities, posed with the attitude to match. We were on a mission to get into the Palais without incident. We went straight to the largest auditorium for films and awards, the multi-storied Palais. The Palais has a huge, towering, wide red carpeted staircase that literally seems to be a staircase to heaven. If you're a person using a wheelchair of any hesitancy about climbing stairs, 
You'd think there was no way for you to get into the building, unless you knew what I did. I was familiar with the Palais from Meetham. Tom and I had seen lots of performers there, John Cicada, Rusted Development, Al Jarreau, so I knew how to go to the rear of the building on the water side. I picked up a service phone and dialed zero. I explained to the man on the phone that we had tickets waiting at the will call and that I used a wheelchair. He said he'd be right down. Within minutes, the guy was at the back door opening the gigantic service doors and leading us through the maze of floors and elevators. When he opened the last door, we entered a room filled with hundreds of international press shouting questions and popping flashes at Michael Moore and his wife, Kathleen Glenn. <laughs> Michael smiled at me. We, we know each other a little bit back in Traverse City. Then Edward and I were ushered into the 2300-seat theater. Our friends were part of the team making Fahrenheit 9-11, and they'd been asked last minute by lots of celebrities for tickets, Denzel Washington, for example. We were lucky we had tickets. In our seats, we could barely breathe. In front of us was Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. A row to our left, within arm's reach, was Mick Jagger. <laughs> there were so many celebrities around us that we stopped nudging each other and whispering. Michael and the whole film team came out before the film. Everyone was in tuxedos and evening gowns. The crowd wouldn't stop clapping. People on stage were crying, and the film hadn't even begun yet. Then the lights went down, and the film started. Everyone, or Edward, seemed to be watching the film like he would any other documentary. Everything seemed surreal to me. The subject of the film, where I was, who I was sitting amongst, everything. When it was over, the audience gave Michael and team a standing ovation for several minutes, the longest one I'd ever heard. The crowd was yelling endearments. Lots of people were crying. The place was electric. Edward and I had earlier been invited to the after party. I was so emotional that I just wanted to get away from everyone and to try to think. I kept mumbling to Edward, you don't understand. It's my country that went to war. It's my country, not just a movie. So we made our way past everyone and out into the early evening. It was before sunset, and we walked along the sea, mainly in silence. We were nearing the edge of town and came upon a small waterside restaurant. I waited while Edward went into the restaurant. In minutes, the owner came out with a small round table, white tablecloth, flowers in a vase, a bottle of wine, and two glasses that he set up on the beach. We ate and talked for hours, first as the sun went down and then under the stars. It was magical. Edward and I had to rush to catch the last train out of Cannes. One stop, one town over from Cannes, 10 uniformed police, French policemen with several German shepherds boarded our train. Edward had just gone to the restroom. The policemen came over and asked me a series of questions. They were looking for someone and got off at the next stop. Edward and I walked in silence from the Nice train station to my apartment. It was still warm out with a light breeze. The town was solidly asleep except for the street cleaners and an odd business here and there. We smiled at each other as a cat or two ran past us. Today, I was going back to the States. And then I put a couple PSs. PS, at the end of the Cannes Film Festival, Fahrenheit 9-11 did win the top prize, the Palme d'Or. PSS, what the hell, shortly after Michael Moore created a film festival in Traverse City. 
At PSSS, I've been back to Nice several times since 2004, teaching, consulting, seeing friends, etc. Edward is all grown up and doing well. So am I. Thank you. <laughs> Next, Elon Cameron reads excerpts from her journals that document her quest for love. I received my first journal as a gift. It was a Holly Hobby um, journal, you know, that rag-wearing, cat-loving, angel-faced girl that I somehow weirdly identified with in the 70s. A blue gingham checked cover with a little brass lock along the edge. It came with two keys. I remember at the time thinking, who would I ever give the second key to? (laughs) I wrote in this journal sporadically from age 7 to 10. My first entry, April 29th, 1980. Dear diary, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It took me a long time to figure out what I was doing. What gets recorded in journals? I had this idea from pop culture or the media or something. What shouldn't get recorded? I wasn't sure. So I didn't write about my parents' separation or my dad going to rehab or our house burning down or their divorce or really anything of substance that was going on with me at all. I wrote about friends at school and what happened, a little bit of the classroom, but mostly the playground. The fall of 1981... Today, at school, we learned about cells. I already knew most of it from when my mom took biology classes. That's it. (laughs) These spare accounts don't really capture any of the meat of my life at the time. Though around age 11, something interesting did happen. At the top of the page, in bold letters, I wrote the word, Adolescence. (laughs) Adolescence. Little pronunciation key. And then I wrote the dictionary definition of adolescence in my journey, journal. Something exotic. Something I knew was approaching. Though I didn't record that in my journal at the time, I was at the local library, back when it was on 6th Street. And I had taken out all of the science books that I could find, and I was reading everything I could about being an adolescent. I read every textbook about my weird, slowly maturing condition. My social experiments and my desire to fit in required that I take an interest in boys. I had a deep, romantic longing in my soul, something that rarely saw the light of day. I wanted, oh, how I wanted. And I pined, oh, I pined. In fifth grade, I set my sights on Ben Oswald. Some of you may know him. The ferocity with which I wanted him to be my boyfriend was nearly rabid. In fact, that was clear in pretty much all of my romantic pursuits in my entire life. There was indeed some kind of desperation to it. If you could love me, maybe you could save me from whatever it is I'm so afraid of. But we'll get to that in a minute. In fifth grade, my friend Lisa helped me write Ben a note. Dear Ben, I like you a lot, and I mean a lot. (laughs) Everyone knows you're nice and funny, but I see something more. I hope you know that I mean this sincerely. 
maybe we could walk home together later. Lavender Heart, Elon. Ben and a gaggle of us had walked home and to grade school together forever. We usually played snowballs, spitballs, paper fights, grass fights. We usually stuck together when the big kids picked on us. And I was a daydreamer. I mean, really nothing's changed. But at the time, just completely in the clouds, hardcore. I dreamed that Ben and I would hold hands walking and talking about important things in life, like the latest Tiger Beat issue. And the meaning of life and what we were going to do over summer vacation. But these hopes were dashed by first recess. I'd handed the card to Ben on our way into school, proper stationery, an envelope even. This was no average grade school note. His classroom was a little further from the playground than mine, and I walked out into the cool air, exhilarated, awaiting his response. Would he write back? Would he talk to me? I started to walk toward the swings when I heard behind me in a whiny, fakey girl voice, some boy, not Ben, yelling after me, after me, Dear Ben, I like you a lot, and I mean a lot. <laughs> a burst of laughter came from the crowd, and I looked behind me, where Ben was standing with a dozen other kids, and they were all laughing together at me. And I was nowhere near cool enough to roll with it. So I ran for the trees, hiding behind a small patch of cedars, weeping uncontrollably. And recess did eventually end. And I ate lunch in the bathroom, and I went to the nurse's office for second recess. He had pinned it up on the current events bulletin board in his classroom. From my journal that night, 1984... My heart, and indeed my soul, are crushed. There is no hope. <laughs> I was 11 years old. I wanted so desperately a life of romance. Even as a tween, it was so profound, my longing. Many of my journals from then, even until my late teens and early 20s, were full of this angst-ridden obsession with tiny little bits of hopeful light interspersed but mostly just directed at completely uninterested people. When a boy was interested in me, I would just deluge him with my dreams and worldviews and my dire desires for a great big life and his part in it, and I would quickly and effectively chase them away. It worked every time. <laughs> then quickly back to obsessing over the completely unavailable. I, in my purse tonight, have two 150-page college-ruled notebooks dedicated to a very gay, much older man that I was obsessed with for two years of my teenage life. <laughs> I was 17. He was 28. I go through phases in, the no in these books knowing that this obsession is actually ruining my life, that I have to get over it but I can't. At the midpoint of the first notebook, however, in the winter of 1990, one very small entry exists in the midst of being obsessed. Last night I spent the night at Rachel's house. It was fun. We made tapes and watched movies and talked a lot. Today, I found myself kind of wanting to cuddle with her. And at one point, I almost wanted to kiss her, scribbled out words. 
I thought of it, but it disappeared pretty quickly because I'm attracted to a woman. Does that make me a lesbian? See, I'm realizing I'm not very secure with my sexuality. I know I'm attracted to men, but it's my own fear. And I think that this abnormality is keeping me from further sexual and emotional exposure to the other way. I don't know. I feel pretty lost. Just because I was attracted doesn't have to mean anything, right? I don't know if I felt attracted, or maybe I was just thinking about being attracted. I think I think too much. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Next entry, back to obsessing over tall, handsome gay man. <laughs> My journal continues along this annoying trajectory for an irritatingly long time. I know this because I've been rereading it over the last month or so. Even when I figure out that I'm actually into women, it goes on for years of pursuing women who have no interest in me and wishing a relationship could have possibly gone differently, completely disappearing from writing in my journal whenever things were going well and diving into my self-obsessed reflection when things went pear-shaped. Friday, May 12, 1997. Tonight, I went to Girl Bar by myself. It was an experiment. I went, I drank a beer, I sat there, I got up and left. Moderate success. I was in a room full of a bunch of cute girls, and I will go back maybe with a friend or something. I'm learning about gay pride and internalized homophobia. I think I have some of that. I thought I dealt with it when I came out as bisexual, but realizing that there's more to my story than that has really helped me to see that who we love and how we love is something that evolves over a lifetime. So I guess I'll just have to continue to figure this out as I go. I'm just glad that I'm finally coming out of the closet. Told mom again. This time she was way more confused. Next, dad and Kimberly. And I don't know how to come out at work at all. How is it that I work in a social service agency of 56 women and I'm the only one? I suppose it is the North Shore. I guess that's how. I need to find some lesbian friends soon. In 1998, some of my dreams came true. I'm moving in with three new housemates, all dykes. We're living in Uptown, which is totally sketchy, but close to Andersonville, which is really cool. And it's only three blocks from the lake, which I totally need. I need Lake Michigan. It's my body of water. It's my home. If ever there were a thing in nature I felt I belonged to, it is Lake Michigan. April 8th, 1998. Koya and I just painted a huge refrigerator box bright pink. Installed gingham curtains and a little armrest. Yes, we have built a kissing booth for my birthday party. I can't believe I'm in my late 20s now. <laughs> it's so nice to have femme friends. I never knew that femmes existed outside of straight ladies and drag queens. What a joy to talk with my friend about nail polish, lip gloss, and crushing the patriarchy. <laughs> I have found my tribe, and it feels great. Upon figuring one thing out, I felt ashamed that I'd lived in the suburbs, I felt ashamed that I'd dated boys and even a man. I wanted to erase all of my uncool past and step into this magical, sparkly new world absolved of everything I'd been before, free from it. My friend Julia had just converted to Judaism and told me of her mikvah, a ceremonial bath in which one's entire physical being is submerged in water and from which one emerges, emerges wholly oneself and fully Jewish. I wanted that bath. I wanted to be free from the clutches of my bi-curious past. 
I wanted to emerge wholly myself, leaving any trace of the lies I felt I'd told and the things I believed behind me. May 26, 1999. I met someone. I think this might be real. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I just told her I liked her shoes, and she asked Rosie for my email. So, I don't know what happens next. I'm totally off the map here. I don't know what I'm doing. It feels crazy and terrifying and a little bit fun, but I think I might go crazy or throw up. I'm not sure. I finally came out to my dad and stepmother, who were relatively nonplussed, but thoughtful enough to put a sign on the front door that said, Welcome out. Come on in. Yeah, they deserve a round of applause for that, for sure. Bob and Kimberly Cameron, everybody. (laughs) Um, It went better than I thought it would. I'm a very lucky person. I just wish I had had a chance to tell my grandmother before she died. As was usual, after the initial strain of establishing a relationship like most 20-somethings, I didn't write in my journal until things went wrong. I got dumped at the Hartford airport. My flight to Chicago was delayed six hours. I spent every last cent I had on phone cards and called my friend Tiffany and my mom. I mostly just sat there holding the receiver and crying. I was familiar with this feeling of longing and loss, and I committed to pour myself into something more productive as soon as humanly possible. So I started writing. A lot. Mostly just self-indulgent garbage, but I made a rule that I had to write 100 pages a month It was my minimum. In addition to my journal, couldn't just be processy emotional bullshit. I started my second writing group and began performing at spoken word open mics, always being more storyteller than the ever-present and very popular slam poet. I liked it, though. It was something new, something I was falling in love with that was mine, something that was a part of me. I met someone else, sworn never to choose wrong again, I chased her off quickly, but she came back, and we're still sorting things out 13 years later. Thank you. In the next story, a found letter to TV executives seeking the identity of an actor springboards my musings on the lost art of proactively trying to meet cute guys. Okay, so when my father died, my brother, sister, and I had to clean out his apartment. And we found an envelope, like a, a, a big envelope for each of us that had school photographs, art projects, letters that we wrote to him. And in my folder, there was this letter, which was not written to him, but he had kept it. Um, I don't remember writing it, but it's definitely my handwriting. Um, so... <laughs> To whoever is in charge of the movies shown on CBS. (laughs) Dear ma'am or sir, just last night I finally got up enough nerve to watch the movie, Are You in the House Alone? Which is frequently shown on your station. I would like to compliment you on your movie selection. And I'd like to suggest you show that movie again because I'd really like to see that movie again. Also, I'd like to know who played Philip, the rapist. (laughs) If somehow you would get this across to me, I'd really like to know. Thank you. Most sincerely, Karen, a fan of good movies and good actors. 
P.S. <laughs> May I suggest you write back telling me the wanted information to the back flap on the envelope? Okay. <laughs> so... So this letter, written on graph paper and in green pen, <laughs> was my attempt at uh, forging a dating life when I was, I'm guessing, nine or ten years old. <laughs> I saw an actor on TV. I thought he was cute. Potentially, I didn't quite get what a rapist is. <laughs> but I didn't know who he was, so I had to write to CBS to find this out because back then, we didn't have the tools that we have now. If you liked somebody, you had to find a way to get that information. It wasn't just as easy as going to imdb.com. So, and th there were always cute guys for me to find. I mean. When, you know those caricature artists that they draw you with a giant head and a tiny body and you're doing some kind of activity that shows what you're into? Well, there is an oldie but awesome-y of me from when I was six years old running in the direction of the boys' locker room. <laughs> so, even at six years old, I knew what I wanted, I was unafraid to get it, and I was even willing to say to the caricature artist, this is what I do. <laughs> what do we want? Boys, when do we want them? All the time. <laughs> so this continued into my 20s and 30s. Um, I was really good at finding that guy. You know, that guy. The guy who at that moment is the hottest guy I've ever seen in my entire life. And I absolutely have to have him. Um, maybe I spy with my very eye, that guy, sitting in the United Terminal waiting to board the same flight that I'm waiting for. So I take out my notebook and my pen and I write a note that says, hey, you and I should talk. And I offer a gift along with it in the form of a stick of cinnamon gum and <laughs> wrap it in the note and I casually walk over and I hand it to him and then I walk away because he needs a few moments but he's gonna realize I'm right, we, ne we need to talk. Uh, maybe I spy with my very eye this guy sitting by himself at the Harrison Diner in between grad school classes, drinking a coffee, smoking a cigarette, sketching in his uh, figure drawing notebook, uh, occasionally peeking into his copy of Siddhartha. <laughs> and uh, I go up to him casually and I say, hey, we've been checking out each other out for a couple weeks now. Tomorrow's my birthday. Wish me a happy Maybe I spy with my very eye this guy leaning on his bicycle outside of a Baskin-Robbins and I casually cross the street to pretend I want ice cream even though I'm not hungry because I'm going to go introduce myself. But of course, first I have to make sure that he's super hot when we're on the same side of the street. <laughs> Inevitably, this guy's name is Dave. <laughs> and if I decide I want that Dave, I make it happen and then that Dave is mine. But Dave is so 20, 30 years ago uh, that it just doesn't work like that anymore. Social media has completely changed the chase. You know, maybe we'll see somebody's photograph online and we can ascertain, well, that's where this person works. These are his friends. This is, these are his quirks, endearing or weird. Um, these are... Um, you know, th th this is his marital status, this is potentially his fidelity status. Um, and, and we can fall in and out of love with these people without 
putting any effort into it, but with a ton of information. And uh, all we know is their name, if that. So, you know, the passive act of online dating, we can word barf as much as we want, true or not, into our neatly packaged profiles, and then casually click through all the profiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going on nothing more than photographs and a wing and a prayer that they have semi-decent grammar. <laughs> Those of you who have online dated know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so in person, we can actually gather some intel on a person. Um, actually, a couple months ago, uh, this guy in front of me in line at PetSmart and I were kind of eyeballing each other over our respective giant bags of dog food. And um, I don't know if I would have said something to him in a previous life. I, probably I would have, but you know, this time we were surrounded by other customers and the cashier, and I just, you know, I have this like weird fear of being the antagonist or protagonist in the Facebook statuses of strangers. So, so I didn't say anything. I totally chickened out. Um, but you know, I, I, but there was stitching on his shirt, and he clearly worked in automotive. So when I got home, not gonna lie, I started to look up, you know, trying to figure out like, oh, well, what company does he work for? I might need an oil change. Um, <laughs> and uh, I found nothing. So then I started texting my friends who work in automotive, and I was describing his face and describing his shirt, and none of them knew anything. So I'm so sorry, handsome stranger. I gave it the good old two-hour try. And <laughs> It's not going to work. There is an old school approach that I did once try where I totally left the computer out of it and actually just left it all to the fates. There's a legend that if you tell a figurine of St. Anthony exactly what you want in a partner and then bury him upside down, well, then that partner emerges pretty soon. Well, let's just say St. Anthony has been buried for quite some time. <laughs> So I don't think it works. However, um, you know, I was actually living in an apartment complex when I got my, my little guy, and um, you know, I didn't follow the directions to the letter. When you live in an apartment complex, your options are limited. So actually, all this time, he's been buried upside down in the cushions of my couch. <laughs> so if any of you have ever been to my place and you were wondering, what is that? That was St. Anthony. <laughs> you know. I'm thinking that actually Craigslist misconnections is pretty similar. It's kind of like the modern day putting effort into the pursuit. Although, you know, I wonder how many people actually pair up or like realize that messages are for them. Because quite frankly, a lot of the messages are, hey, I saw you at Meyer. We were looking at each other. Tell me what was in my cart so I know it's you. <laughs> I'll bet every single person in the place tonight thinks, wow, that could actually be me. <laughs> but there was actually, I was alerted to a Craigslist uh, misconnection that was probably for me. I mean, it was addressed to Karen with the big arm tattoo with blue flowers. I'm, I'm making an assumption, but I think I'm the only one in these parts. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was actually, it was almost like a piece of cinnamon gum in a note. It was, it was really cool when it was pointed out to me that someone had written this. So I'm thinking, wow, so this guy saw me. He liked me. He can't stop thinking about me. He's trying to figure out a way to get me into his life. Oh, wait, I know who that is. He's also married and has small kids. 
Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that was the first time I ever yanked St. Anthony out of the couch cushions and said to him, we need to talk. <laughs> Clearly we'd had a miscommunication about what I was looking for. But you know, don't get me wrong, I'm actually not discouraged. And to have found this letter <laughs> um, where I was actively pursuing the handsome rapist, um, <laughs> You know, just remembering the way back girl within, what she was like. You know, she chasing Dave's through the airport and the diner and the street corner and writing letters to whoever's in charge of movies at CBS. <laughs> um, I think it's time to bring back more of her. I mean, she's, she's, she's got a spirit. <laughs> things have changed. I've gotten older. Perhaps women of a certain age are not supposed to do such things. But you know what? I'm not, you know, the, the, the chase is so much fun. I'm ready. And I would like to end with this. I have no recollection of this movie whatsoever, but we do have the tools now, so I IMDb'd it. Philip, the rapist, was played by Dennis Quaid. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> so, you know, congratulations to me. Even when I was a teeny tiny girl with a green pen and graph paper, I had excellent taste. Thank you. <laughs> Next, Dave Bessmer reads letters to his daughter that he wrote when she was off to college. Uh, I should probably apologize for this in advance. It was a long time. It's called The Last Great Panty Raid. Late in the summer of 1966, I enrolled at the University of Michigan and took up residence along with a high school friend of mine in a closet which the U of M Student Housing Authority insisted was a double room. In Strauss House East Quadrangle, a huge old dormitory on the south end of Central Campus. As uh, part of East, the part of East Quad I lived in was later renovated for use as the, as the uh, residential college, which is a sort of a small liberal arts college within a big university. But in 1966, East Quad was a dismal hellhole in the zits and horniness capital of the world. Uh, in it dwelt about a thousand guys and no women aside from the eight house mothers. No women were allowed on the floors or in your room except on open open nights which occurred maybe twice in a semester. On these occasions you were allowed to have uh, a female guest in your room if you left the door ajar and all parties kept at least one foot in contact with the floor at all times. I'm not making that up. Our house mother, our house mother whose name was Mom, stood stood five feet nothing and weighed a good 300 pounds. She didn't get out of her room or even her chair very often, so we didn't sweat the open-open rules. Not that many of us ever had reason to, but I'll get to that later, because our subject now is the last great panty raid of the 1960s. Uh, my, my idea of a panty raid up to then uh, had to do with a few fraternity guys getting loaded and forcing their way into a sorority house to steal girls' underwear. A sort of symbolic Viking raid in which a castle is stormed, the men killed, and the women ravaged. In other words, the pre-revolutionary idea of good, clean college fun. The last great panty raid, however, began on a far grander scale. One uh, weeknight in September, as Jim, my roommate, and I sat in our closet studying, a great clamor arose on the street outside. We opened our window and saw on the street below us a mob of perhaps 2,000 quaddies, guys from west and south quads. They were chanting, to the hill, to the hill. 
In a minute, in minutes, Jim and I and a thousand other numbskulls had poured out of the quad onto East University Street and the mob took off at full trot towards the hill, which is a ridge, if you don't know Ann Arbor, on the east side of campus and the location of several stately old women's dorms. Uh, I gathered this was some kind of tradition at Michigan. The few sophomores among us, I should add men, only had to spend one year in dorms at Michigan then, so you can imagine what kind of specimen would voluntarily live and die in a second year in East Quad, uh, seemed to have been through this ritual before. At the foot of the hill was a broad, flat area laid out in playing fields. Our mob came to a halt at the west side of it. Mind you, no one was leading this clot pole army. It just seemed like the thing to do, to pull up, spread out, and prepare to launch a sort of idiot burlesque of Pickett's charge, which is what we did. At 18, I was certainly not the enlightened supporter of feminist ideals I am today. But I can still recall a vague anxiety as we stormed the hill. Were we really about to force our way into Jordan and Stockwell, run upstairs, break down doors, steal underwear out of dressers? Would this be a misdemeanor or a felony? Fortunately, this happened. The 3,000 froth-lipped panty raiders pulled up short in the courtyard of Mosher Jordan Hall without the vaguest idea what to do other than chant, we want pants, we want pants. <laughs> A few young women appeared at their windows. A few windows opened. After a time, two or three wear pairs of white underpants, bikini briefs not yet, were not yet popular, floated downward softly like blossoms born on the balmy night air. <laughs> One pair became lodged in the ivy of the dormitory wall just above the first story. Someone scaled the wall by means of ivy tendrils and retrieved his prize like a pennant one to the chairs of his comrade warriors. We went home. My roommate and I had got split up in the crowd, and when we met up back at the closet, I found Jim very proud of himself for having captured a pair of underwear, which for some reason he stowed away in his dresser drawer. There was no great quaddy panty raid in 1967. By then, radical consciousness was, a, was fast becoming the campus light motif. Johnson was bombing hell out of Hanoi. Riots had turned Detroit into a war zone. Professors and graduate students led sit-ins and teach-ins against the war. Sergeant Pepper hit the music stores, and last year's Madras shirts, prep haircuts, and horn-rimmed glasses were abandoned in favor of bell-bottoms, peasant dresses, John Lennon glasses, and lots and lots of hair. I had a bit part in a play that fall called McBird. It was running on Broadway at the time, and our group, the Weird Sisters, had permission to stage it as a benefit for an organization called Citizens for New Politics. It was a Shakespearean parody. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this before. It's kind of uh, uh, based mostly on Macbeth with, the line stole, with, with lines stolen from Hamlet, Caesar, Henry V, and so forth, which posed Lyndon Johnson as Macbeth and John Kennedy as Duncan. It was kind of nasty stuff. We played our last performance to a standing room only crowd with the curtain time of midnight following an anti-war teach-in. The witches chanted, double and double, toil and trouble, burn baby burn in cauldrons bubble, and the audience went crazy. <laughs> the second one is called number two on the Italian sex poll. I believe I mentioned a problem with the food in East Quad in 1966. The worst of it was a barbarous invention of the kitchen staff that we called Quaddy Burgers. These looked like hamburgers, but the hot stuff in the middle wasn't much like beef. It was more like a mixture of cereal products and small game. We assigned a patrol of zoology majors to keep running senses of the cats, dogs, and squirrels in the neighborhood to see if a sudden drop in numbers presaged a meal of Quaddy Burgers. 
Food fights were common, political riots were still a year or two off. Grassroots democratic action consisted of giving swirlies to guys who got out of line during quiet hours. This involved dragging the poor offender down to the communal bathroom, stuffing his head into a toilet and flushing. Repeat offenders were threatened with dirty swirlies, but fortunately, fortunately this was considered cruel and unusual punishment on our floor. Two guys shared a room down the hall who were from a working class suburb of Detroit. Out of kindness, I'll not use their real names, but they rhyme with Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, if East Quad was the zits and horniness capital of the world, Sam and John were among the ruling elite. Their lives were so dull and lonely that to entertain each other, they would hold contests, uh, how can I put this politely, that, that were at, to adolescent self-abuse as the shot put is to track and field. At least, <laughs> at least they claimed to do this. No one was ever interested in watching. Sacco and Vanzetti also ran a weekly item posted on the hall bulletin board called the Italian Sex Poll, poll, which was another imaginative way for Sam and John to sublimate their frustrations. Here is how I got on it. One Saturday night, I set off alone for a mixer at Mosher Jordan. I had met a girl named Anita, and I met a girl there named Anita, a thin, shy, pretty Italian girl. We danced. We got less shy. There was, miraculously, an open open at Strauss House that night, and my roommate was out of town. I invited Anita to my place. She accepted. We slunk past the open door of Mom's room. Mom sat in front of her television as fixed as the Sphinx. I had almost got Anita into my room and some big lunk of a third-year engineering student wearing nothing but a loose bathrobe with a plastic pen holder in the breast pocket barged out... I might have made that part up. Barred... <laughs> Bar barged out of his room, headed for the showers. Everybody turned several shades of red. We weren't so modest then, or we were so modest then. I whisked Anita into my lair, locking the door behind us. I won't narrate what went on over the next hour or so because it is anticlimactic, so to speak. <laughs> but by the next morning, word had spread via the, entire, by, via the engine school clown that I had had a girl locked in my room for at least an hour, and I had to confess that, yes, our feet had briefly lost contact, contact with the floor, and yes, she was Italian. I was a hero. That morning, the new Italian sex poll was posted, and I had skyrocketed from nowhere to number two. <laughs> In fact, number two was as high as any living mortal could aspire since Sam and John had awarded number one in perpetuity to Rudolph Valentino. To make it up to me, Vanzetti, a glutton for surrogative sex, offered to lend me his car for my next date with Anita. As a freshman, John wasn't supposed to have a car on campus. He couldn't, therefore, get a student parking sticker, and long-term parking was precluded on nearby streets. This meant John had to move his car about every six hours for eight months. <laughs> I talked Anita into getting a blind date for my roommate. The evening didn't go very well. Jim, whom I had known since eighth grade, claimed to be of Dutch ancestry, despite showing every indication of ancestors born in, say, Korea or Indonesia. His last name, oddly, could have sprung from any of these places. Anita's uh, friend was a very pretty little blonde who I sensed early in the evening didn't dig Jim because of his race. Her discomfort was a mystery to my very conservative Dutch-American friend. So Jim and the blonde called it a night early, and I drove Anita out past North Campus until I found a place to pull off the road to honor the loan of Vanzetti's 63 Chevy Bel Air. 
Again, we must early depart a sordid scene, noting for the sake of social history and the young lady's honor that 1967 was the last year in which college woman, women wore rubber girdles. <laughs> our undergraduate years bring much change into our lives, and this was especially true in the broader context of the late change in the late 60s. By 1967, the university, in the face of both feminist protest and a student housing shortage, ruled that women like men could live off campus as sophomores rather than as seniors. Further, the dormitory visitation policies were liberalized. That is, open visitation went from twice a semester to seven days a week and around the clock. By the beginning of 1970, I was married and had a night shift job delivering Domino's pizza. When I made a delivery to a dorm room one night, a kid opened the door wearing a bath towel and nonchalantly paid me, while his girlfriend giggled and waved at me from his bed, the covers pulled up under her chin. I remember being a bit upset at having been born a whole two years too soon. I also remember seeing kids get busted about that time on South University for humping in the street uh, at high noon during a civil disturbance. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll had all become political acts, and politics had taken to the streets. And I remember running into John Vanzetti one day, not having seen him in the two or three years since we left East Quad. I was hanging around a protest event rally on the Diag. The organizers had set up a lectern on the steps of the Graduate Library and a lot of angry rhetoric admitted from the PA. Um, at the uh, top of those steps, and off to the left and alone, was my old friend John. I ran up to him and called his name. Vanzetti, hey, Paisan, what's happening? Vanzetti flinched and coiled as if shot by a sniper with a small bore rifle. Jesus Christ, don't shout my name. This place is crawling with pigs. I looked around. No uniforms, plainclothesmen, feds, FBI. What's the matter, man? You gone underground? Yeah, burned my draft card. It's probably only a matter of time before they get me. A speaker had burned his draft card a few minutes before on the steps below us. It was a cool, clear day. John wore a military fatigue jacket. So did I. It was the part of the uniform for us anti-war guys. Paranoia strikes deep. Into your life it will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line. The man come and take you away. Thanks. Do gaps in our journals tell us much about our lives as well? Next up, Jen Cameron reads entries from an early journal and wonders why it keeps lapsing into radio silence. Uh, when I moved to college to the big city, Austin, uh, well, my self-discovery was kind of full-tilt boogie at this point, and I started to write it down. January 22nd, 1995. I think I was like 18. 18. The first semester has been so dynamic for me. I'm constantly learning and being put into such new situations. I love Austin, on Tuesday, my sorority sister roommate came home and decided, hell, there's nothing better to do. Guess I'll drop acid. <laughs> I'd totally forgotten about this. And I walked into her room, and the tab was on her tongue. She is crazy. <laughs> I could have never predicted what kind of person she was on first impression. From noon until 3 a.m., she tripped. I had such a good time entertaining her. 
I don't think I'll ever do it. I mean, it intrigues me so much. I'm so curious about it, but I have too many hang-ups in hell. It's more fun watching and entertaining others. Flash forward, I may have done it once on a sugar cube and danced with an 80-year-old at Jenny's Little Longhorn on South Lamar, and that was creepy. The next entry is a full year and a half later. Spring break 1996. Like, you know, like, just like spring break. Like, I don't need a date. You guys got to know when that is. <gasps> Looking back on the last year and a half, there was so much change. I'm 19. I mean, okay. <laughs> it's amazing how we are daily molding our thoughts, our morality, and our judgments. I am so different from two months ago. How is it here that I am here two nights away from my spring break trip and still listening to the Reality Bites soundtrack? I'm sorry, not as cool as my wife. Uh, I feel like I'm dangling, still holding on, but reaching, reaching for that last rung to grab hold of and pull me up over this barrier. Or maybe it's just dark and I haven't realized that there's nothing there. I took a lot of philosophy classes, the only classes I passed in the first year of uh, my college experience. Uh, then we get here, just a month later, years it seems, when you're 19. Saturday, April 27th, 1996. This is three days from me turning 20. My roommates might have bought a keg of Shiner beer, and anyway, uh, that was fun. Now, I don't need to say all that, right? Like that just sort of, okay. Now that I've awoken from my drug haze, and let me be clear, the day after the keg of Shiner beer, like at six in the morning, I had to cease drinking fluids and uh, had to have my wisdom teeth taken out. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure the drug haze is Vicodin. It could be pot, maybe, but I mean, this is years ago. So. <clears throat> Maybe I can more honestly and cognitively reflect on my last week. Whoever knows what a friend's fate is going to throw at us. Mark, so dear, he was my prom date, junior and senior year. Uh, Mark, so dear, and after all these years on the seesaw of sexuality towards each other, Well, I am coming closer to resolving my feelings for him. (laughs) P.S. I was totally Skyping with him and his partner 20 years last night. And uh, so anyway, um, happy birthday to me. He's bisexual. (laughs) What a crazy thing. I always wondered how I would take it if he was seeing someone else. Not that he's the one for me, but he has loved me more than any other friend. He has been been seeing a really special guy since November. It's now that I finally find out. I asked him if he was on drugs. I was like, are you on drugs? What's up? I'm gay. I'm gay. I'm bisexual, I mean. I'm bisexual, not gay. He told me that we would never be together because he would never be enough for me. It broke my heart when he said that. I mean, he can love me that much. Will I find the right one to love me even more? Oh, my God, I'm, you know, worried. 
he slash we, yes, 90, 94, live in such a repressed world. I pray for the day that society and family will accept him. Until then, he will never be completely happy. But will anyone? I already said this. He was my prom date junior and senior year. He was my mom's arm candy, my mom's words, for my father's fourth wedding. And that's a whole other, you know, podcast. But he was the best man at my wedding. He stood up there. And I, I began to journal more during this time. I, like, would beg him to go to gay bars because this was before gay-straight alliances. And, you know, we had gay bars. And that's how we came out. Um, but I began to journal, and the handwriting is even more awful. It's really bad. You can thumb through it later. Um, but it became like a purging therapy, like, like feverish gibberish. I don't even want to read this to y'all. What happens when you live it all by intuition? Don't let time go on. Begin marching towards what counts most now. No, 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 no. Okay, sorry. So, it was so bad. It's in there. All the words trying to come out at once, and in the middle of the story, it was almost like I was giving voice to the recesses of my, my mind that I had excommunicated. What's interesting are the things left unsaid, monumental things that I still could not bear witness to in the written form. My first girl kiss, my first girlfriend, Jennifer, weird, um, and my first real heartbreak, no mention. But in the years that followed, I, I found that leaving and traveling would lead me closer to my true nature. So I traveled all over Mexico, the Western U.S. and Canada. There's a lot of blah, blah, blah in here. I did all these things, but I like left to get away and understand myself and, you know, whatever. Didn't work totally, but I didn't really get a good suntan in Alaska. But I settled in Chicago a few years later, and I was there to kind of hang out for a few weeks. I was uh, seeing about a girl. <clears throat> I got a cool internship, and I settled into domesticity, and my journal entries from this time often go to the subjects of um, cats, <sighs> Ikea, <laughs> and, and, and sex, and sex. I finally, uh, I finally felt safe to like actually write about uh, these things explore myself on the page. The handwriting, frenzied at times, begins to get a little more legible. Um, and then in this post-9-11 world, because I was in Chicago for 9-11, um, I found myself evaluating again, and this girl I was seeing about fizzled, and the, the internship turned into a job. God help me. <laughs> And uh, I wanted to go back to school in Chicago. Well, I mean, I was like, what the hell am I doing here? I'm sorry. Like, I'm a Texan. I could barely find it on a map. And, uh, you know, but it was cool. And then I, uh, I met this hot, funny, spoken word and stage performer that made me kind of squirm. I had to ignore her a few times after we met because I was so uncomfortable. And then, and then we fell for each other pretty immediately, and I was still... You know, I, I was still one foot out the door because my identity was tied to not being tied down, right? And I love spontaneous road trips, and she preferred to know where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> so in 
So I cut and ran. I got a month-long Amtrak rail pass. I packed up a backpack's worth of necessities with like a 20-pound HP you know, laptop. <laughs> Dear diary, I'm existential. Um, but I returned five months later to Chicago. I don't know why, but uh, you know, I, I stumbled upon this entry in a notebook. And I'm sure someone gave this to me, like they gave me the butterfly notebooks and all this, but it, was, it had a quote from Rumi on the cover, just to tie in the Rumi. Unfold your own myth. <clears throat> and my handwriting actually is like, for the first time in all these entries, it's, it's actually quite clear and legible. And so I start out a little clever, not just like given the timestamp. <laughs> I ask a question. Where was I at 3.30 p.m. February 6, 2003? <laughs> oh, oh, let me answer that. All right. At Montrose Harbor, Harbor with a heavy heart and weighted mind, revisiting the water, the larger intention, the beginning of a very beautiful love, snow heaped on the iced shallow, too fragile to step, Life and movement stopped for the season. Broke and broken. I can't afford a therapist or drug, so I'll self-medicate. <laughs> Finally experiencing heartbreak five months after walking out. I could not commit. This is, this is surely a moment. A moment for getting real with myself. 26. Woo! You guys will do that. You guys right in the back corner, you're going to be like, 26, how did I get here? Oh, my God. Sorry. Love you guys back there. Second chance at school. There is hope. <clears throat> I find myself wishing that we would run into each other here, like the morning after our first night, driving down Sheridan Road on my way to work, and, and there she is at the stop ahead. We are finally not paces behind each other, but just right in time. When we met, it was such a right and wrong time. She mended my broken wings and feared my inevitable flight. I loved her, but knowing I had to fly soon, lit out without a trace of sadness, convinced surely that this is evidence of falling out of love, shutting down, memory loss, repressing myself, obsessing, awake, but fucking lazy. February 7th, 1.45 a.m. Threw my errands to the wind to spend a little time with her. We went 20 rounds of air hockey. I won. Well, I let her win. And delighted all to hell in every good score against me. We laughed. I'm lucky that she'll spend time with me. Must stave off impatience to discuss past, present, and my stupidity. And then radio silence again. What happened? What happened? True to my journaling form, I fall off and fall into living. But I found this piece from later that year. Was having an easy morning cup of coffee yesterday with Elon. 
our last day of vacation together, shoulders still soft, a bit sunburned, and the magic. Her friend from Traverse City was at Kopi. Now, this is the woman that we'd wanted to catch up with while we were there visiting, but she was out of town. And here she was in Chicago. The undercurrent, the connection that we all have with each other, the synchronicity that surfaces, reminds us that we're all connected. I challenge you to find these times where time is slowed, where you are in another dimension of existence, where it is magic. Ultimately, what kept me from the page was fear, the fear of truly discovering myself. And in the early years, that meant putting deep self-discovery on lockdown so that I could participate in society safely, so that I could pass. But uh, now, here I am. Cheers. In the final performance of the night, Leslie Ty regales us with songs she wrote as a kid when Unicorns and Michael J. Fox were a few of her favorite things. So I was never very good about writing in a diary. Um, like Jen, I have tons of diaries um, that have, you know, that span decades and they have like 10 to 20 entries and then just blank pages. Um, but I was very prolific in the creative writing areas, which makes sense. Um, uh, I wrote a lot of stories. I wrote a lot of poems. Um, when I came home in fourth grade from seeing Back to the Future for the first time, I immediately wrote Back to the Future Part Two, the screenplay, my first screenplay. It was probably about nine pages handwritten, so it wasn't quite really a screenplay, and it probably had a part for me in it. Um, <clears throat> but this, this kind of became my thing. I also um, I have a little show and tell. This is uh, middle school was The Lost Boys. And this is my sequel, novelization. Um, yeah, lots of chapters. It was, again, like Lost Boys again, but just set in Florida. Here's my uh, sketch of, of Edgar Frog, Corey Feldman. Also some Garbage Pail Kids stickers, if you know those. Yeah, so um, I, wrote, I wrote a lot of, of things based on other things, or, or my own things. Um, and I got this guitar when I was about 10 years old, I think, and took lessons for like maybe two years. This is the guitar I got. And I, all of my guitar knowledge is based on those two years of lessons, just to warn you. But I began writing songs around that time, and so I thought I'd share a few of my songs. Um, the first one, I, had to, I actually had to retype it because it was kind of like messed up all over, but I, I pieced it together. And I don't remember writing this song. Um, it's very metaphorical and symbolic. And it's a song about good and evil and the one pure thing, the unicorn and his call. <clears throat> Fire breeze through deep dark trees, the gods whisper silent prayer. Glory, love, the hope of the dove, show how little we care. 
about the beauty about the dream about the stories and the gleam about the one that rises high above them all about the unicorn and his call <clears throat> in a magic land where life is free things are pure and so are they Pe people live there peacefully I would go there any day everyone is their own king or queen no race or sexism Love is always in the air, and no one can be called a bum. But it's sorrow, sorrow all around. Bombs and guns and crazy flare, shattered dreams and crossfire streams. Pity always there. And we all know just where we want to go just where to be loved and so and we all care that there's something there the unicorn will be there with his call, with his call. So, yeah, that is the unicorn song. I don't know if that's the melody I sung, but I did do the chord progression as I wrote it. Um, the, the second song I'm going to share with you, I actually know when I wrote it. I wrote it Monday, July 11th, 1988. As I discovered in this lovely journal entry, I like the different colored uh, ink there, of course. On this day, I also finished uh, Michael's mixtape. I was really into Michael Cadigan, as is seen in every single one of these journal entries from this week. Um, I was really happy because I talked to him that day and he wasn't mad at me. That was good. And I was super excited that on Friday I got to spend the night with Rachel and we were going to go see License to Drive with both the Corys, by the way. And on this day I made up a new song. Here we have. I made up a new song on my guitar. It's called I Hate and Love You So and it's pretty cool. So I hope you agree. Here, see, there it is, exhibit. Yeah, exactly as I wrote it down. And I actually remember this song, like, completely. Oh, no. Lost the page. Page two. Oh, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I numbered it. Page two. <laughs> so otherwise I'd get confused. Okay. All right. Well, there's something strange about you Something strange about you 
Something that I just can't place There's something strange about you Something strange about you Something hidden in your face Well, it's kind of like a haunted house Something haunts me deep within Makes me kind of scared inside Makes you kind of want to grin It's something that I wish would leave Something that I wish would go Makes me want to scream and scream And I know it is my foe And it's you that I love And it's you that I want to shove Like a split personality, I hate and love you so. Well, there's something strange about you, something strange about you, something that is quite untrue. There's something strange about you, something strange about you something wicked but I have no clue it's a nightmare not a lovely dream something hidden in your past something very few can have and I know that it will last it's quiet but it's loud at times it's young but it's very old Shining light, but it's dark as hell. Its steps are soft, but very bold. And it's you that I love. And it's you that I want to shove. Like a split personality, I love and hate you. Hate and love you. Love and One, one more short one to share with you, and this was inspired by this man who I loved an awful lot. Um, and this has got to be, I don't know when this was written, but it's got to be pretty early, because the, the, the Michael J. Fox obsession was, again, back to the future, like, through, just before middle school. So um, some fun facts I have listed here. Um, he, uh, his favorite dessert is fresh fruit. Very healthy guy. His favorite color is khaki. Um, his favorite time of day is midnight. Uh, his favorite outfit is comfy clothes. And he had a goldfish named Garp. So there's some fun facts. So this is a poem for Fox parenthetical song. There are chords written in here. I have no idea what's happening with these chords. It's really weird, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is my poem for Fox. I love you, Michael J. Fox. You know his real name is Michael Andrew Fox, by the way. So I use his real name. He changed it because of the SAG. Like there was already a Michael J. Fox, so we had to change it. Or a Michael Andrew A. Fox. Plus Michael A. Fox, you know. 
He didn't want to be obvious, though he is a fox, you know. But All right. <clears throat> Michael Andrew Fox. The name says it all. It's easy to believe when I look into his eyes. I see the life I'd like to lead. M A F is a person with class. A guy I'd like to go out with and stay the night out with. Tell me, Michael, tell me, Michael, what you mean to me when I wake up in the morning and see the rising sun. I look into your eyes and feel my heart is one. Mr. Fox, I love you. Mr. Fox, I love you. Ooh, oh. Yes, I do. Mr. Fox, I love you. Won't you love me too? Love me too. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.